All right, here again with a, another episode of the Munitions Podcast. That's Munitions Podcast. What is that? That is all things firearms, all things um, gun-related, legal-related, and maybe even some social and political and constitutional issues as well. Steve Palmer here with co-host Derek DeBrosse. Derek, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing great. Uh, for those who have been following thus far, or if you're just catching up, go back and catch the old episodes. I guarantee you'll like them. But we've got uh, – we've got – a, a guest today, and this is a little bit, uh, un, I don't call it unusual because we plan on doing a lot more of this, but this is our first guest on the official munitions podcast. And uh, we don't have, a, I don't want to waste everybody's time, so we're just going to jump right into it. We have Andrew Bronca, who is, uh, I've worked with him, I've consulted with him before as an attorney uh, on uh, self-defense matters, and he is the guru, the expert, the guy to go to across the country, spanning the globe for all issues <laughs> self-defense. And um, he's got... Uh, uh, we'll just let him introduce himself. But Andrew, how are you doing today? I am doing awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's always a pleasure to be here. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, I just uh, I'm I guess the self defense lawyer. I do use of force law. That's all I do: S defense of yourself, defense of others, defense of uh, property. And uh, we do uh, a, a lot of legal consulting, but also a lot of education. So books, courses, DVD courses, online stream courses, instructor programs, anything use of force related. You can find it all at lawofselfdefense.com. Use of force law, I should be specific. Lawofselfdefense.com. That's me. And, and you're you're a lawyer, but uh, here you are with lawofselfdefense.com. I'm jealous because you have found a way to uh, to, to do something in law that, that's interesting and, and what you like to do. How'd that come about? I pulled off the magic trick. I, I'm, I'm a lawyer who doesn't have to deal with clients, so it's absolutely <laughs> awesome. <laughs> the, the worst part of practicing law, for folks who don't know, are, is clients. 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 Uh, so if you can clear them out, all, all my clients are other lawyers. So they're, they're not the uh, the people being charged, which uh, makes for a wonderful difference in uh, work-life balance and experience. Uh, how did I do it? We I was a longstanding member of the gun community. I started shooting competitively when I was a kid, small bore rifle. Uh, then later as an adult, of course, went to law school, came out, and uh, people at shooting matches and gun shows and gun stores would ask me, uh, when it would be lawful to shoot or not shoot someone. And I was a guy with a concealed carry permit walking around every day with a gun. And I realized I did not know the answers to those questions. Not really, not on any substantive level. Uh, and that scared the heck out of me. And it was embarrassing because I'm the lawyer in this little clique and I should know these things. So I went back to the law library because they don't teach us this in law school. At least in my three years of law school, we spent maybe a few minutes on use of force law as a legal defense in first year criminal law. Certainly no depth. Uh, this should be a semester-long class in law school for anyone who's going to do criminal defense work. But to my knowledge, I don't know of any law school that does that. Uh, so because I wasn't taught it in law school, I had to teach myself, which, of course, as lawyers are trained to do primary legal research. You go to the law library, you read the statutes, you read the court decisions, uh, and you learn this stuff. You read what treatises are available. And I learned it for the state I was a member of the bar of, where I was living, Massachusetts. And then, But if you ever lived in Massachusetts, ever been there, it's a small state. You go 30 minutes in any direction, you're in New Hampshire, Vermont, Rhode Island, Connecticut. And I was in all those states all the time, so I thought I better learn those states too. And when I did that, I began to see a common pattern that... Self-defense law is not drastically different from state to state. It's a very old area of the law. It dates back at least to the ancient Greeks and Romans. Uh, old English common law, of course, before we were even a country. And because it's so old, it has very well-established foundational principles. And those principles apply, ultimately, I realized when I looked into the laws of all 50 states, it applies across the U.S. about 80% the same uh, in terms of the underlying legal principles. Of course, every state has its own statutes, own court decisions, um, 
own jury instructions, and there are small differences, and those small differences matter. They can mean the difference between an acquittal and conviction. But for the layperson, uh, the underlying general principles are essentially the same across the 50 states. Well, look, you, you gave us a lot to unpack, so maybe I'll just I'll, I'll go back to the beginning. Um, you mentioned that the history of self-defense goes all the way back, you said, even to the Greeks. Yeah, really to animals. I mean, we think about natural law sometimes when we're talking about law in a theoretical sense. Um, you know, it's the, it's the law of nature. Even animals defend themselves against attack, right? It, it's the privilege to protect your genetic code so that it can continue moving forward just as a matter of evolutionary biology. So it's no surprise that human beings, also being animals, would do the same. We protect ourselves from threats of harm. And then as humans, when we're protecting ourselves against the greatest, the apex predator on the planet, which is other humans, we have to devise a set of laws to differentiate between a justified use of force and self-defense, even to the point of taking another human life on the one hand, not a crime, versus murder, the unlawful taking of a human life, which is perhaps the worst crime a human being can commit. The, the result of both those acts is the same. It's a dead person. But the criminal liability even the civil liability for those should be completely different. One is a heinous crime. The other is simply not a crime at all. Indeed, it's a social good. It's, it's sort of a, it's an interesting concept because as, as you're just explaining this, you know, I've got, an, I'm an old history major with a, a philosophy background and I love studying sort of the origin of the legal system and the origin of the laws. And, you know, there's this notion that our legal system really reflects uh, this notion of natural law or God-given rights and God-given law. And, and in fact, our constitution it was designed to sort of uh, solidify that uh, through the human endeavors. But uh, self-defense is sort is so ingrained and so... Uh, part and parcel with who we are, it's a great jumping off point for that discussion. It's like, wh why can we defend ourselves? Well, because we can, you know, it's like, it, it's an eight in our, or an eight in our, uh, in our being, it's a God given right. How do the laws, uh, you know, it, it, what's your take on how the laws sort of reflected um, that concept? Because it, it's not always obvious that you should write down laws that reflect what is a natural right or a natural law. How far back does it go into the Western well, and system? Of course, for, for most of human history, it wasn't written down. And to the extent it was written down, it was common law. It was court decisions. It was, these are cases we've looked at before, and these are the judicial results that have occurred, and therefore this is what the pattern we should follow in the future. This codification of laws uh, in America is relatively recent. I mean, um, you know, a few generations, but obviously in Amer we're in America, it can only be, what, a, a couple hundred plus years old. Uh, when, when Napoleon codified law in his... Uh, era that was new. Um, it, it, it was not the common, especially in English. And old English common law was nothing but common law. Uh, but in all these cases, because because the outcome is so similar of self defense and an unlawful killing, it's a dead person, prospectively, um, and we differentiate between them so starkly. One is a social good, and the other is the most horrific crime you can commit. We need ways to <clears throat> distinguish between those two circumstances, and the way we do that is to apply conditions that have to be met for your use of force to qualify as being lawful. And the conditions are cumulative. You have to not have been the aggressor. You have to have not have used too many force. There's only a handful of them. The good news, folks, is there's not a lot of conditions for your taking of another human life to be lawful and a social good. There's only five of them at the most. There's not 500, there's not 50. This is not the uniform commercial code we're dealing with here. It's, it's a relatively simple, straightforward construct. There's only up to five and often not as many as five. But the catch is, if you're missing any of those required elements, whatever you did, it was not lawful self-defense. It was simply an unlawful killing, and you pay all the consequences for an unlawful killing. So it would behoove people 
uh, to know what those elements are so they find themselves in a position where they're thinking, holy cow, I may need to kill that guy for me to live, that they can be confident that they're doing it within the boundaries of those required elements and they're, they're going to be less likely to be subject to legal sanction. There's never 0% risk of getting convicted, folks. If you threaten or use force against someone, uh, you could do everything right and there's still some risk. Mm -hmm. And any of the attorneys here will tell you there is noise in the criminal justice system and innocent people get convicted, it happens. But what you can do is reduce your risk of getting wrongfully convicted as close to zero as possible. It's just like in the physical fight. No one's Superman. There's no 100% guarantee you're gonna win whatever fight you find yourself in. But you train, you get a gun, you learn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, whatever you do, uh, as a responsible adult to reduce the risk of losing the fight to as close to zero as you can practically get it. That's why we try to teach people here at Law and Self-Defense. Just reduce your risk of criminal liability to as close to zero. So when you are defending yourself, your family, your property, there's never a 0% risk. I don't get into fights you don't need to get into, folks, because there's always a greater than zero risk that you could end up in prison as a result. But you can get the risk pretty darn close to zero if you know what you're doing. That's interesting, Andrew. Um, when I when I teach uh, self defense in my concealed carry classes, I actually entitle it "When Not to Pull a Gun." I think too many mm -hmm. too many instructors teach you know these are the elements is what you have to do what where you have to meet in order to use deadly force self defense um, justifiably. So I started realizing that what normally happens when people are charged with crimes actually doesn't involve the firing of a round. It right. involves the invocation or the the injection of the firearm into an already heated discussion, you know, and then this person is charged with assault. Steve and I have had a client that we took to trial on one uh, where a gentleman was trying to defend an innocent child that was getting abused by a grandfather and he interjected himself in a situation with a gun and he was charged with a first degree. He was looking at 11 years in prison. We ended up winning that yeah. case. And that, that's, that's not uncommon. So, I mean, uh, maybe 10% of the cases I consult on are killing cases where someone was actually killed. Another 10%, maybe a shot was fired, uh, but nobody died as a result. But 80% of the cases I consult on are aggravated assault with a deadly weapon cases where no shot was ever fired. But the gun was displayed, the gun was pointed. Folks, once you do that, you know you're in your brain, you're, you're thinking, I'm doing this to defend myself. But to an outside observer who can't read your brain, to police, to prosecutors, to judges, and maybe to jurors, that conduct is also the same thing as aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. And then you're looking yeah. at typically 10 years in prison for the aggravated assault and often another 10 years or so for a, a gun yeah. sentencing enhancement if you're found guilty of the crime. So you could be looking at 10 to 20 years in prison easy, no matter how genuine and good faith your right. subjective belief is that you were acting in lawful self-defense. The most common thing I hear from clients on cases I consult is them saying, I can't believe I'm getting prosecuted for self-defense. What are some? Because they genuinely believe it was self-defense. What are some of the cases more more outrageous or bizarre cases you've had? I mean, I I've had cases that just make my my classes laugh when I tell them the facts. People pulling guns. I had one guy pull a gun on a, a guy on a on a bicycle. He was in an F one fifty. He was a contractor, and they got into a road rage incident. You got to imagine this guy pedaling up on in his tights on his bicycle in Clintonville, Ohio. They get into a finger pointing match, and my guy pulls a gun, and and I asked him why. He says. I'm an old man, Derek. I was afraid for my life. He's 50 years old. <laughs> right. So you know, it's just to, comical. I mean, there, there are cases I consult on where, where the, the threat of defensive force was meritorious. I mean, of course, it's my job to argue they're all meritorious, right? That's why I'm being hired to consult on the case. Uh, but in almost all those cases, there were still a lot of exits off that 
speedway to uh, a threat or use of deadly force that that person could have taken and not found themselves in a position where they felt it necessary mm -hmm. to threaten or use deadly force. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people are getting into arguments, fights, because they're not, they're not applying what I call the maturity of foresight. Uh, they get into what they think is a low level, little verbal type of argument, and they're not thinking, well, how might this escalate? How could this go sideways? It's like if, if you, any of you have kids, you've seen your kids do something like, you know, take a cup of juice or something and put it on a coffee table, like 49% over the edge of the coffee table and walk away. And we know what's going to happen. The cup's going to fall off the coffee table. Obviously, we've seen it happen a thousand times, and then we'll have to clean it up. Children don't know that because they don't have that life experience. I think a lot of people get themselves engaged in conflicts that they should realize, you know, this, you don't know. Once you're engaged in that conflict, you've given up control of where it ends up. That's up to the other person now. How it's going to escalate, how it might go sideways, how violent it might get. Wouldn't it be better not to do that in the first place? I mean, you don't have to get into most of these arguments. And I know a lot of people, we see these videos on YouTube where something bad is happening and people go, I, why didn't anybody do anything? Why didn't, why did people just stand around and watch? And maybe they're standing around and watching because they've seen other situations where people have intervened with good intent and then find themselves getting prosecuted because it escalated to a use of force scenario. Mm -hmm. And remember folks, all the people evaluating the merits of your use of force after the fact, they don't know what actually happened, right? They, they weren't there. The cop wasn't there. You're not getting attacked while you're standing next to a uniformed police officer. The prosecutor wasn't there. The judge wasn't there. The jury especially isn't supposed to know. They're supposed to be a blank sheet of paper, right? Completely biased, impartial, uninformed about what happened. So nobody knows what actually happened. Uh, I would suggest you don't even know what actually happened in any absolute sense. We all know if you take eyewitnesses to an event and you separate them, you get five eyewitnesses, you get five variations of what happened, right? So there's no absolute truth in the criminal justice system. All people can do is look at the evidence and try to come to reasonable inferences about what they think happened. And that might reflect reality or might not reflect reality, but absolute truth is simply not possible and everybody knows it. And that's one of the reasons innocent people get convicted. So you're stepping in, you're intervening with good intentions, but after the fact, it could be made to look like you are a horrible monster because the outcome ended up bad. A lot of people evaluate these, these cases based on the outcome. And if the outcome's bad, Everyone's thinking, well, you must have done something wrong because we ended up with a bad outcome. Uh, and therefore, you did something incorrect along the line. And then they'll hold you criminally liable, even though on the legal merits, that shouldn't be the case. Yeah, now you're into my realm. You know, doing I do criminal defense. That's all I've ever done sort of as a, as a practical matter. I've been trying criminal cases for 27 years. And, you know, as you're, as you're talking about this stuff and as Derek is talking about his, what he's telling his uh, students as he teaches – there's this sort of notion, maybe it's like I, I picture Wild West movies where the marshal comes in and says, I shot, it was self-defense, it was clear self-defense, and then everybody says, oh yeah, and then they drag the dead body away, and then the, the, you get the undertaker who's building the coffin and he gets buried. <laughs> and yeah, no big deal, it's all self-defense, he doesn't even get charged, but that's not reality. And you know, I, I had a case, or I, I had an opportunity to go up and teach with you, Derek, up at uh, a Black, local Blackwing, uh, I think a local uh, Blackwing. Uh, it was up at Blackwing Black Wing Shooting Center. And the first thing I did is I, I said, "All right, we need a volunteer." And somebody put his hand up. There's always one that, that wants to get involved. And I said, "No, I need another one." Uh, and uh, or no, then uh, I said, "Derek, you're the prosecutor. I'll be the defense lawyer." And you sit this guy at a table. I rearranged the tables and stuck a guy right out front, so everybody was watching him. 
and it really was to punctuate the point. It's it, just because you shot somebody and you say it's self-defense doesn't mean that the law is going to treat it that way. And it certainly doesn't mean that the police, the prosecutors and the government is going to treat it that way. And now all of a sudden you've got to fight for your life and it's not so easy. They're not just going to drag the body away and say, all right, we take your word for it. Self-defense, no big deal. And <clears throat> and I guess in, in, a, in a large part, that's where you come in, right? Because I would call you and say, all right, help me analyze the legality of my client's conduct based on the following facts. And then we, we give you a factual rendition. But I, I think it's important for everybody to know that don't think because you carry a gun that you've got some training, even a lot of training, that you're going to use it and intervene in a scenario or protect yourself in your own scenario and just get a pass on self-defense. Yeah, one of the big traps in our community is that people learn their self-defense law. I mean, normal law-abiding people with concealed carry permits they learn their self-defense law largely through anecdotes. They hear about events in the news. They get, they're a member of the NRA, so they get the NRA magazine, has an armed citizen column in it. And they, re they, they see these stories about someone threatened someone with a gun or shot somebody, and, and there was no legal consequence for them, especially those armed citizen columns. They drive me crazy because no one's ever arrested, no one's ever prosecuted, no one's ever convicted. Uh, but in a lot of those cases, that's because the authorities chose to use their discretion not to bring charges against that person. They could have been prosecuted. Listen, if a prosecutor wants to take you to trial and you've done anything like threaten someone with a gun, off to trial you go. We don't have real probable cause protection in America. Um, once you are engaged in that confrontation, you've just put your life in someone else's hands. It's not up to you anymore. But a lot of times people do get a lucky break. They do get the benefit of the discretion of authorities and other people read about that event and they conclude, well, that must mean what that person did was lawful. If I do the same thing, I'll be okay. I also won't be arrested or charged or prosecuted and convicted. But folks, if the person wasn't arrested, charged, prosecuted, convicted because of an act of discretion, a different prosecutor with exactly the same facts could come to a different conclusion. That same prosecutor the next day with an identical case, the same facts, could decide to prosecute that case for no better reason than, well, the day before he had a golf match he had to get to, and today he doesn't, and he's got some free time so he can pursue this case. It's entirely at their discretion what they do. So you have to be prepared not for what a prosecutor might do if he's feeling favorably disposed and in a good mood. You have to be prepared for what he can do if he wants to throw the book at you. And the only way to do that is to know where the actual legal boundaries are and stay so far within them that you look like you're hard to convict. That's the single best thing you can do for you. If you look like you're hard to convict in the absence of some political or other motivation, um, a lot of prosecutors, they got plenty of easy cases to take to trial. They don't need the hard ones to take to trial. They don't, they, they don't want to be losing cases at trial. Uh, and the best way to make yourself look hard to convict is not to learn some legal tricks. It's to know where the actual legal boundaries are and stay so far within them uh, that you just look like a tough case. Well, you, you mentioned political forces or other uh, other uh, influencing factors, maybe. And, you know, the one that comes to mind, the most obvious one to everybody is Rittenhouse. And, you know, maybe that was so obvious to some people that he was acting in self-defense, but not so obvious to others. But I think what made it obvious is the lens through which people were looking at it. So if you're looking right. at it through one political lens, it's obvious. And if you're looking at it through another political lens, it's equally obvious in the opposite direction. Neither lens had anything to do with actual self-defense. That, that That's what's interesting about it is that uh, – uh, you had people who were uh, pro-protest, and they said it's not self-defense. Other people were uh, against protest, and it was self-defense. And I and it's not lost on me to say this that, or to think this that um, if the if the political forces were reversed, I think people would flip on it. 
and uh, that, that's what I think you mean by sort of these outside forces that influence uh, the government's and the prosecutor's decision to actually pursue cases. Yeah, there, there's a lot of money and political capital to be made out of these cases. Uh, so whenever you have value that can be extracted from a case, people are motivated to uh, uh, launch propaganda campaigns. That happened in Rittenhouse. It happened in Zimmerman. It happens in all these cases, especially any uh, police use of force case, because there's a lot of money there. There's 1983 money in federal court to be had. Uh, if you can pressure politicians to settle, especially if you look at some of these attorneys who are very high profile in the police use of force space, guys like Benjamin Crump, he never goes to trial. He's an attorney. He never goes to trial. It's all settlements. Uh, but if he can, he's very good at propaganda. He's very good at managing the media and he's very good at bringing political pressure to bear on politicians. And it's not the cop who ends up paying the settlement. He doesn't have $27 million to pay anybody. It's the department and the authorities over the department, politicians who are making the decision on whether to settle. And folks, politicians are happy to spend other people's money, your money, to make their political problems go away. And a guy like Benjamin Crump has learned over a long career, and he is enormously successful at this, that if he can bring sufficient political pressure to bear on the people making the settlement decision, he can get 20 million, $27 million at a pop, and he gets a third of that money. Uh, the guy's become very, very wealthy doing that, but it has nothing to do with the legal merits of the case or the actual underlying facts. It's all a propaganda campaign. And you look at cases like Rittenhouse, there's massive misinformation going on in the media. Uh, and so the people neither understand what the actual law is, and they, they're completely misinformed on what the actual facts are. So it, it's not surprising they come to a misperception about what the legal outcome should be. They're, they're not necessarily being unreasonable. Of course, we live in a highly partisan era. People are in their tribes, regardless of anything else, it seems. Just look at this past election. Um, but they're, they're grossly misled. And they, they simply, they're, they're, not, they're not informed consumers about either the facts of the law of these cases. And it doesn't really matter in the end because it all comes down fundamentally to politics. And one great thing about being a lawyer, one of the reasons I went into the law is for us, once we get in a courtroom, in theory, we're stripping a lot of that noise out uh, because the court decides what facts are admissible or inadmissible. So mere propaganda ought not be getting into the courtroom. The jury's instructed <clears throat> what the law actually is, not what the media might imagine the law ought to be or they'd prefer it to be. So in the courtroom, we're trying to get to a more uh, a sterile, clean environment in which to make these legal decisions. It's imperfect. Politics still gets in. People lie to get on juries. That kind of stuff happens. Uh, but it, trust me, it's much better to be tried in an American court uh, than probably anywhere else in the world and certainly better than being tried in the media. Did you, um, you recently followed a case out in Colorado, did you not? I think it was a ski instructor case, self-defense case. New Mexico. That's New, Mexico. New Mexico. Yeah. Well, right. could you tell us about that case a little bit? I know you're in Ohio, Colorado, New Mexico. It's all the same. <laughs> it's all the same. It's all out <laughs> west. Uh, yeah. This was a this is a prosecution. It was relatively low pro profile compared to a Rittenhouse or a Zimmerman case, but it was the the other characteristics were much the same. Uh, the state had a, so this this former famous skier. I don't follow skiing, but I'm told he was formerly famous. U.S. ski team, extreme skier, had a concession to do helicopter skiing stuff up in Alaska for many years. Uh, but he'd grown up in New Mexico, decided to return to New Mexico in his later years uh, to live down there. And he was um, he drove down there in his pickup truck and his RV, his trailer. And uh, he met up with a guy who lived there, had 16 acres of land to sell out in the middle of New Mexico. They started negotiating. Uh, he was allowed to stay on this guy's property while they were negotiating the uh, the land transaction. 
And one night, uh, things went sideways. Uh, there was a physical confrontation between the two men, uh, the skier and the landowner, and the skier ended up shooting the landowner dead. When you look at the actual evidence in the case, it's entirely consistent. Every piece of evidence was consistent with lawful self-defense. Yet the state decided to prosecute this guy anyway. And when they prosecuted him, they charged him with murder within six days. They got a grand jury indictment in front of a grand jury um, from, with testimony from the lead investigator saying, listen, we don't have the forensics results yet, but we expect when we get them, they'll be consistent with murder in this case. They never even requested the, uh, the testing they said they were going to get uh, for the grand jury. They got an indictment of this guy for murder. They put him in jail and they kept him in jail for two and a half years until his trial. And then at his trial, there was literally no evidence inconsistent in self-defense. And for those who don't know, in a self-defense case of trial, the burden's on the state to disprove self-defense beyond any reasonable doubt. And they didn't even have evidence inconsistent with self-defense to begin with. When it finally went to the jury and the jury deliberated, they came back within a couple of hours after a full week of trial with a not guilty verdict on all charges. Uh, that's how lacking in merit this particular case was. Um, but prosecutors will bring these cases anyway. And there's really no way to, unless you're in a state that has some kind of self-defense immunity provision where you can demand a pretrial hearing, basically argue self-defense before a, a jury is selected. In those cases, you may, you may have an eject, eject, eject option to prevent yourself from being dragged into an unmeritorious uh, self-defense trial where, again, the risk of conviction is always greater than zero and the cost is absolutely tremendous. But if you're in a state without any self-defense immunity provision, that prosecutor wants to drag you off the tr trial on the cleanest self-defense facts imaginable, off you go. And you incur all that expense and all that risk. You had mentioned that it's the state's burden uh, to prove. What's interesting is when you and I met, do you remember wh where we met? The first, first time? time. It must have been uh, that uh, one of those uh, self-defense insurance organizations. It was USCCA up in West Bend, Wisconsin. They flew right. us up there, wined and dined us. And you mm -hmm. taught a course to all the uh, legal advisory attorneys and you're going through each state talking about self-defense law and you came to Ohio and you said now for the Ohio exception. What did you mean right. by the Ohio? By the way, I have a follow-up story to that and how that law got changed. It was because of that, that meeting, by the way. But <laughs> um, why don't you tell our audience what you meant at that time by the Ohio exception? So there's a phrase in the law uh, called affirmative defense. And, and, and traditionally, an affirmative defense was a defense that, one, the defense had to raise himself and then the defendant had to prove that defense by a preponderance of the evidence. The, the prosecutor had to prove him guilty of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, but the burden was on the defense to prove their legal defense by a preponderance of the evidence. Historically, self-defense was an affirmative defense, and the defendant had to prove self-defense by a preponderance of the evidence. But over the last 100, 150 years, uh, one by one, the states have changed that. They've Instead of putting the burden on the defendant, they made self-defense basically a negative element of the crime. So you're charged with murder because you killed somebody. You say, no, I did it in self-defense. The state has to prove murder, every element of murder, like they normally would, beyond a reasonable doubt. And now they have to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt as well. And this shifting of the burden from the defendant to the state happened over a hundred year period. One state after another after another adopted this change. And the last state to do it was Ohio, only within the last three or four years, as I recall. So that, when that, I taught that class, Ohio was still the last state that had the burden of self-defense on the defendant to prove it by a preponderance of the evidence. I made a call at lunchtime during that conference to a, a, one of the directors and the board of directors of Highlands for Concealed Carry, and that started the discussion in Ohio, and the law got changed about two years later. 
So it was indirectly because of Andrew Branca that Ohio's law finally got changed. I remember we were at a dinner when that when that change was just about to happen, and uh, there were a bunch of lawyers there. One of them was a prosecutor, and he was all out of sorts, Ohio prosecutor. Yeah. He was just like, well, if they make this change, I'll never be able to convict anyone who claims self-defense because now the burden's on me. And I'm like, John my friend, 49 other states, 49 other states already have this standard, <laughs> and they're convicting people left and right. Trust me, you'll be able to do it. Yeah, and, and as a defense lawyer, I, honestly, I didn't mind the affirmative defense. I sort of liked it because it gave me something to do. It gave me a, it gave me a backbone to mount a defense to a charge because I had to tick off um, two or three elements, and uh, and I only had to do it by preponderance of the evidence. So it's not always, uh, it, it's not necessarily a bad thing for the prosecutors that they have the burden of proof because uh, the just the way the jury hears it, the way the cases get presented, sometimes uh, it, it's it's more difficult to defend those cases. I just had one in Hocking County that it scared the crap out of me because my client clearly acted in self-defense. And fortunately, by the time the case was over, there was maybe only one person in the courtroom, the prosecutor, who didn't think he acted in self-defense, but he was right. summarily acquitted. And um, it, But it, the way the prosecutor is able to argue it based on the burden of proof uh, the actual notion of beyond a reasonable doubt sort of got rug swept and it just becomes what the jury thinks. And that's the most common thing in the world. Defense attorneys do not take sufficient advantage of this burden that's on the prosecution and the, and the height of the burden to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. I see it all the time. They, the defense in a self-defense case makes an opening statement. They'll make some brief reference to the burden uh, and then they move on. Uh, and the jury doesn't really catch the importance of it. And we make decisions in our normal life, and jurors are presumptively normal people. They're not legal professionals like us. When we go about our normal day, all our decisions are preponderance. Do I want to eat at this restaurant or do I want to eat at that restaurant? Do I want to have a beer right now or not have a beer right now? Is it time to go to bed or not? I, if you think it's more likely yes, then that's what you do. None of us make decisions in normal life beyond a reasonable doubt, except maybe getting married or getting divorced or something along those lines. Uh, our normal decisions are by a preponderance. And, and uh, if you leave a jury to their own devices, by the time they get to the end of the trial, they've largely decided what they think the verdict should be, and they will have decided it on a preponderance standard because that's how we normally make decisions. So the cases I work on, I, I always urge to the defense at the earliest possible opportunity, not only to explain that the burden's not on them, but on the state, but in a very graphical way. Uh, I, I like bringing out a big piece of oak tag with like, you know, uh, the, the height of 0% burden to 100% burden, and beyond a reasonable doubt, it's not 100%, but it's damn high. And you can tell them, hey, listen, the state has to disprove self-defense not just by this much or this much or this much, but all the, all of, all the way up here. If they don't do that, that means they have mm -hmm. not disproven <clears throat> self-defense. And personally, I would do that during voir dire. I would do that during jury selection. Yeah. This is what the judge will instruct you. Are you prepared to emotionally commit to this standard? Which means you might think it's 70% likely it was not self-defense, and that is still an acquittal. Are you prepared to do that? And they'll all nod their head because that's what they always do. But now, for the entire trial, they're filtering every piece of testimony and evidence through that standard. They know it has to be at the 90% or 95% level, or it's not enough. Uh, if you wait to do that until the end of the trial, until closing, it's just too late. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and I, I think it's even too late if you do it, if you only start uh, at voir dire. I think this has to start when you uh, when you prepare your trial. The, the case has to be prepared with that in mind. And when we do focus groups, uh, we listen to 
uh, prior, in fact, this case down in Hocking County, Ohio, we did a focus group and we listened to what the problems were uh, out of the focus group with how our client behaved. And then we can tailor the defense to that and then incorporate the beyond a reasonable doubt to those elements. Yep. I mean, it, it, the, there's a difference between mediocre and, uh, and even good versus uh, top quality trial attorney, self-defense or, or any, any sort of criminal defense. Uh, and it matters. Uh, what you're talking that, that's about That's a really real problem matter. in our profession. It's a real problem mm-hmm. because the consumer, the client, is, in, is completely ill-informed. Yeah, yeah they don't know. The they, they take for granted. I acted yeah. in self-defense. Yeah. Why do I need to spend 100 grand on a lawyer to, to try my case or yeah. whatever it be? And if you think those numbers are outrageous, they aren't. In the, if you've got a murder trial, like a two-week murder trial, and you want a top-notch defense, uh, you're just scratching the surface. And, and so when, I, when we talk to people about uh, their training or using their handguns or even pulling their guns. It's like the first thing I always tell them is, uh, do you really have to? Because if it don't assume that you're not going to be spending your, or selling your house, selling the farm, selling everything you own to try to defend yourself. Like your, um, New Mexico guy after spending two and a half years in jail. Right. And how's he doing that? You know, he was a ski guy. It just, it, it, it is, it, it can ruin your life. Even if you win. I have a yeah. question for you, Andrew, real quick, if I can, um, so I get a lot of, I teach a lot of students concealed carry. I've been doing this for 14 years. You've been involved in this industry longer than me. And I hear a lot of bad information out Trying there. Trying to say I'm old? <laughs> well, I'm getting old too. I just turned 40. Um, but in any event, I, I get a lot of bad information. There's a lot of bad legal information out there. Things like, well, if you have a concealed carry license, you can't open carry or you can only carry one gun. Just nonsense, stupid stuff. But in the self-defense world, one common thing I hear of, there's actually, it's the same issue with two different uh, ways that it manifests itself. One, don't carry self-reloading ammunition or hollow points. And number two, don't get a trigger job, right? And there's a lot of talking heads out there that'll say, you know, this is what you do. This is what you carry. This is what you tell the police after a shooting. And I find a lot of it just to be nonsense. I think, I think, I think a lot of it's noise. There's some very simple things that you should do after a shooting that will keep you largely safe legally, such as keeping your mouth shut. But I want your opinion on that, on some of these issues that are, that are these statements and these <laughs> theories that are going around in the gun community. I mean, I think a lot of this is is very kind of theoretical by, by people who don't actually practice law. It sounds good to them because they've never been in the trenches and have to make these arguments or, or fight these arguments. The, the ammo, the, here's the truth about the ammo, folks. You never have the right ammo. <laughs> Whatever ammo you used is the wrong ammo, according to the prosecutor. If it was hollow point, you should have used ball. If it was ball, you should have used hollow point. It's always the wrong stuff. Personally, I like to keep things as simple as possible, uh, as few variables as possible that I would have to defend against. I got a buddy who works for the FBI. Every year I call him, what are you guys carrying these days? And he tells me, and that's what I buy. Because if the FBI is carrying it, it's defensible for me. I don't have to worry about it. Or, or, or your local police department, whatever that is. I would stay away from esoteric things, anything that that's unusual, anything because to a prosecutor's eye, when he's thinking about whether or not to take this case to trial, he's thinking about how can I build a narrative? What can I talk to the jury about to try to convince them that this guy should spend the rest of his life in a cage? And anything that's unusual is something for him to talk about. You want to look as boring as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I generally recommend against anything weird with the ammo, anything weird with the gun. And we have so many great guns to buy these days. Folks, in a real self-defense encounter, uh, an OEM Glock trigger, five and a half pound trigger, it's fine. It's fine. You don't have to go crazy. You don't You don't need to be changing it. It's not going to make a difference. If you're shooting competitively and, and you want a light trigger in your competition, do whatever you want. I don't care what you do with your fun guns. 
But I don't think you're getting yourself much yeah. if you drop a bright red aftermarket trigger into your Glock uh, in terms of practical self-defense. But it makes it look different. It makes it look interesting. It makes yeah. it look weird. They can the prosecutor. It gives the prosecutor yep. something to talk about. I mean, you nailed it on the head. I, you know, in, in the civil context, I've always told clients, if you give me something to talk about, we have a case. And in the same token, uh, I had a, I have a YouTube channel. We got 50,000 followers. I did a video once called "Don't Carry a Pink Gun," and right. I knew it would go viral. I had like six, seven hundred thousand views on it or something crazy, and uh, I knew it was going to piss people off. But it, it's along what you're saying. I, even if the prosecutor, even if I can successfully keep the prosecutor from even talking about the pink gun, the jury's going to see a pink gun, yep. and they're going to interpret that whatever way they're going to interpret it. It could be, oh, he's not taking this seriously. This is a game to him. You know, and, and so you're right. Milk toast, boring as possible. Well, and, and that's not even getting to things that actually go to state of mind, like a Punisher backplate right. on a Glock, right. or, or let God sort him out on the on the slide, or watch for flash on the muzzle. All this kind of nonsense, right. folks. Who's the think about this? And I see these stickers and backplates all the time. Who is the Punisher? The Punisher's a cartoon character who's a vigilante. He acts outside the law using force on people. <laughs> is that who no. you think you are? Because you did Glock did not put that backplate on that pistol. Yeah, you it, did that. It, you make yourself look like you're carrying a gun because you want to use it. And right. Right. and as a defense lawyer who has defended more of the more of these cases than I can count. When my clients look as though they wanted to use it, it matters. And it matters not just because of the way they look. I think it matters, Andrew, a little bit about what you're talking about the elements are. Because then maybe they're not the – maybe they didn't retreat when they could have. Maybe they maybe they were the first aggressor. Maybe Kyle Rittenhouse, because he showed up with an AR-15 strapped on his uh, shoulder, he was treated a little bit differently. And not yep. to say he should have been, but the optics of it matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you, uh, since we're firing questions at you, you mentioned uh, police use of force at one point a bit ago, and I want to get your thoughts on what are the rules of police use of force versus civilians' self-defense? Because mm -hmm. we see this all the time. I mean, we saw Derek Chauvin, who was convicted. We see, um, and that clearly he was not acting in self-defense. It was something different. Uh, right. But, you know, as I argue my cases often in front of a jury, it's like, well, what if the police were doing this? Would it be okay if this guy pulled a gun and the police shot back? Or is it different if my client shoots back? Or uh, how does it work? What, what's the standard? What are the elements? And uh, what's your experience? Well, on, on one level, from a purely academic sense, the elements aren't really different for police in terms of use of deadly force than they are for civilians, but the circumstances tend to be different. So for example, me as a civilian, uh, I can never be the unlawful aggressor in a fight and then try to claim self-defense. I lose self-defense if I've lost that element of innocence, if I'm the unlawful initial physical aggressor in the confrontation. But police are often the initial physical aggressor. I mean, they have to be. They're making an arrest of a non-compliant suspect. They're going to be the initial physical aggressor in that encounter. They're allowed to do that. The distinction is, for them, that's a lawful use of force. For me, that would have been an unlawful use of force. And it's the unlawful use of force that loses you self-defense. Um, so the police, in that sense, tend to be treated, they swim in different contextual waters in terms of what they're privileged to do, use uh, in terms of force. Another common complication is, of course, the police are open carrying and not just guns. They have tasers, they have OC spray, and if there comes to be a fight over those weapons, uh, we have a complicating factor. And that is, when, when something like OC or taser is being used lawfully for defensive purposes, or in the police context, lawful use of force to compel compliance with arrest, for example, they're, they're typically treated as non-deadly force. A taser's less than deadly force, OC spray is less than deadly force, but I would suggest when those same tools are being used offensively, it's quite different 
they're readily characterized as deadly force. Deadly force meaning not necessarily just force that can kill, but force that can also inflict serious bodily injury. Because when they're being used defensively, when they're effective, the fight stops, right? You all see someone defensively who's attacking you. You don't then start beating that person up when they're neutralized with the OC spray. If you did, it would be unlawful. Uh, same with police. Once they've achieved compliance of the suspect, they don't keep beating that guy. If they do, it's unlawful. But if a bad guy is uh, offensively, unlawfully pepper spraying you or tasering you, it would be reasonable to infer he's doing it to continue to use force upon you to facilitate a robbery or a rape or it's very common in bank robbery cases where the bank robbers go into the bank and they pepper spray the tellers to facilitate their ability to commit the bank robbery. Um, so I, I think we need to characterize the defensive use of these tools and the offensive use of these tools quite differently. But for police, we see many situations. We, we had the, um, the situation in Georgia where they were arresting the drunk driver suspect who got control of the cop's taser, went to tase the cop and the cop shot him. That cop was charged for months. I believe the charges have now been dismissed, but he was looking at prosecution. We have the Patrick Leola case out in, uh, I can't remember where it is now, but another case where he was uh, forcibly non-compliant with arrest and he got control of the cop's taser and the cop shot him. Uh, they just got through the probable cause hearing in that case. That cop's going off the trial on murder charges now. Uh, I think those are unmeritorious. I think if a, a violently non-compliant suspect gets a hold of your taser, He's become a deadly force threat. It would be reasonable to infer he intends mm -hmm. to use that against you. Often they are trying to use it against the officer. And if the officer's disabled, he, it would be reasonable for him to infer his pistol's going next. Many, many cops who are shot dead on duty are killed with their own guns when they lose control of that gun to the suspect. And all police know this. So it's a genuine, <laughs> reasonable concern uh, for these officers. Uh, we tend not to see those situations in non-law enforcement cases because the tools aren't so visibly evident uh, to be grabbed. I carry pepper spray every day. I, I carry a gun every day. I carry pepper spray every day, uh, but it's not on my belt. And it's not like I'd be wrestling with someone trying to get them to comply with an arrest because I don't do that. Um, and so I, I don't tend to find myself in those situations, but, but police often do. Um, and then of course the propaganda machine kicks in. As I said, these, these police use of force cases for, to a guy like attorney Benjamin Crump, when he sees that in the news, that's potentially another $10 million payday for him if he can gin up a propaganda campaign around it. And in today's racial dynamics in America, it's especially if it's a white cop and a black suspect, it's just it's easy to do. And Andrew, um, along those lines, I want to get too esoteric with you on the law of self-defense, but I have this discussion, if, debate, if you will, with my colleagues all the time. When I teach self-defense, and you know, I teach it from the perspective of when not to pull a gun, I, I look at these people that are charged with a crime and they pull this gun, and, and their comments are usually somewhere along the lines, well, I was pulling the gun to scare the person off. So, you know, their position often is, I didn't use deadly force. And my position is, well, if you didn't use deadly force and you pull a gun, you might cause the other person to believe that their life is in danger, so they theoretically could use deadly force. It becomes a circular argument. Right. So when I teach a class, I say, look, the minute you pull that gun, you are justified in actually taking a life. You should not pull that gun unless you're justified, like even pulling the gun, not necessarily pulling the trigger, but pulling the gun right. out. So the second way you said it, I agree with. The first, it was a little confusing to me, but uh, personally, I, I suggest to people that gun should not come out unless in the moment you're presenting that gun, you believe you would be legal entitled to discharge right. the gun. Because otherwise- so, you know, it, it may come out and circumstances may change. So, right. you know, it's not a lock. You may, the person may throw up their hands or drop their weapon or run away. So you don't need to shoot. But me personally, as a guy, listen, I'm I'm 58 in a couple of weeks. I've been carrying a gun since I was 20. Uh, that's a long 
time, 38 years carrying a gun every day. Uh, and my position has always been my gun's not coming out unless I believe I would be privileged to actually discharge the gun in that moment. Well, hold on a second, because this was very relevant in the case I just tried. And it has to do not with pulling. There's a difference between pulling a gun and having a gun and how you have the gun. So it, we have open carry. You can you can put a gun on your hip. And if I intervene in a scenario and I've got a gun that I am essentially, I, I use the word brandish, and you could define that as I'm brandishing it by holding it in my hand and showing somebody. But if I have yep. a gun on display, even if it's passively on display, how does that change the dynamic? And I'm asking sort of hypothetically because in my case that I tried, that was a very real component to it. Did my client interject deadly force into the scenario, even though the gun was not being uh, necessarily pointed at anybody? And uh, how do we how do we unpack that mess? Yeah, it, it becomes a huge gray area. This presentation of the gun, and listen, there are lawyers I respect who uh, they express a, a a sense of comfort with this notion of displaying a gun for deterrent purposes. No, that I just don't share. I don't share. I'm that. very, no, very much not at all. Nor do I. One hundred percent against that. And and I'm going to preface my next comment because I know I'll, I'll get a, a just a storm of protest over this. So I'm going to preface my next comment by saying, folks, I am a Second Amendment absolutist. As far as I'm concerned, every gun law on the book applied to law-abiding, mentally sound American citizens is facially unconstitutional. All of them. All of them. Okay? I am not a fan of open carry. I think you should have the right to do that. If you want to do it, go ahead and do it. But from a practical perspective, you open up a can of worms that can really complicate your narrative of self-defense sure. because everybody knows you have a gun and that gives the prosecutor something to talk about. So if you want to open carry, do it. But I would suggest you do it in an informed way, knowing that you're complicating your legal narrative should you find yourself in a use of force event. Well, again, this is the In terms of the problem. gun coming out, whether something is brandishing, which is typically a misdemeanor, or whether it's aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, which could be good for 20 years in prison, is a matter of perspective. It's sure. a matter of narrative. Yeah. And if the prosecutor wants to characterize it as the latter, a 20-year felony, there's nothing to prevent him from doing it. Now, a lot of prosecutors' offices will have kind of an informal policy. They'll say, you know, if you if you open your jacket and show the holstered gun, we won't call that aggravated assault. But if you put the muzzle on the person, we will. But that's not law. <laughs> that's just their policy. They can change on a whim. And if a bad guy was doing that, if a bad guy came up to you and opened up his jacket and showed his gun to you to change your behavior, we would call that aggravated assault. He's putting you in imminent fear of deadly force harm. Well, this that's is, what aggravated assault is. This, this is, and you know, this is not unlike any other area of the law that I try when I have a client. And it's it, when people are acting uh, for a cause or for their own interest or for some other sort of narcissistic reason. And not to say that those who carry their guns openly are narcissists. But what you're doing is you're saying in some capacity, look at me. And when you're saying that out loud, then people are, in fact, going to look at you. You're going to be targeted and you're going to be looked at differently. And it's again, I agree with you 100%. It's not as if you can't do it. You have an absolute right to do it. I have a right to walk down High Street in a white robe and a, in a pointy white hat if I wanted to. But I'm making a statement that is abhorrent to people. And obviously, right. I would never do that. But the, the point is, is that uh, if, you, if you're putting yourself on Front Street, you should expect trouble. And uh, th there is some component of that, even though you have a right to do it, uh, doesn't mean that you should. And uh, as I often tell people when I'm asked, do you carry a gun? I said, well, not unless I have to. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and they say, well, when is that? And I said, I don't know because I've never had to. And, and you know, it's, and the other thing I often say is why don't they, people ask, why don't you carry a gun? I said, because I'm afraid I might have to use it. 
and you know that that's a again it's sort of a circular smart ass answer but i'm i'm saying that answer to make a point that uh, it's not so simple yeah, and yeah, it's a very, listen, carrying a gun is not for everybody. It's a very personal decision. We all have different circumstances. Uh, I've, I've carried a gun every day in my adult life, but I'll tell you one thing, no one's ever known I was carrying a gun uh, and they never would know yeah. unless I needed the, that gun to make a loud noise. Thank God that's never happened. Uh, hopefully it never happens at any day in my life. Uh, but I, I am not the kind of person who would ever be inclined to open carry even, and I yeah. live in Colorado. It's completely lawful here to open carry. I just, I would never do it. I don't yeah. want people to know I have a gun. I'm, I'm like you, Andrew. I, I say the same thing. I'm a second amendment absolutist, but open carry to me, is just not tactical. It's not smart. It's not intelligent. I fully support the right. Um, but I've defended these people in court that have open carried in the narrative. They try to paint a different narrative. And now, I will say this, there, there are some circumstances in which, for example, you might not be able to get a concealed carry permit because of something in your background or something right. in your history. And so your only option then would be to conceal carry. That, I understand. My, my, the only way I could carry a gun was to open carry right. a gun. I guess I would do it. My first case was um, that case up in Cleveland. A gentleman had just moved here at the time. We had a residency requirement. We didn't have permitless carry. I notice I don't call it a constitutional carry. <laughs> I call it permitless <laughs> carry. Um, our rights in this realm don't come from the Constitution. They come from natural law. But in any event, permitless carry. So he he was open carrying this gun. Uh, some concerned citizens at the coffee shop he was at called the cops. They came in, guns drawn on him, put him on the ground, embarrassed him, arrested him. And he was charged with a felony. Now, we were able to settle that case. But, you know, open carry, it's not always clear cut. And it, it, it is to a lot of citizens, like the word you used, ab abhorrent. It, it, it's it's just not culturally acceptable uh, we had a big uh, federal case out of Toledo. It was the Northrop case. You should read it. The judge was very eloquent in his writing. Uh, and that case stands for the proposition that cops don't have the constitutional right to effectuate a Terry stop for open carry. There's got to be more of an articulable suspicion of a crime afoot, period. This guy was simply walking his dog with a gun on his hip. But look what happened to him, right? right. I defended a guy who was open carrying in a Walmart. It became a big deal. You know, the NRA funded that case. So yeah. you can open carry, but you're taking a huge risk. A huge risk financially is what I look and what I, I so seen for, as the for 25 risk. years. I lived in uh, Massachusetts and uh, believe it or not, had a concealed carry permit the whole time there. They have a very old and uh, esoteric kind of uh, concealed carry permit process there, which is what made that possible. Uh, but there's actually no law in Massachusetts that says you can't open carry. <laughs> it's not against the law, but I guarantee you one thing. You open carry a gun anywhere in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and you will get your ass arrested within five minutes. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you could say, well, that's not right. Well, it isn't right, but it's going it to happen. Right. So, right. you know, if you want to be a cause, if you want to if you want to go represent the cause, then so, do you know, we need that. We need that on some on some sort of a societal capacity. But hey, let me ask you this, because we've, we've all mentioned or you two guys have both mentioned Second Amendment. And I, I argued a case in the high Supreme Court about. Uh, I don't know, a couple years ago, and it, it, it had huge Second Amendment uh, connotations or uh, implications. I actually tried to get up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they didn't take it. They were ahead of me on another case. But one of the things that I dug into was sort of the this notion of a history and textual analysis of the Second Amendment, which is sort of where the U.S. Supreme Court is going as opposed to some other standards of review. And, you know, we started here, and I'm going to sort of wrap it up here, and that is the history and, and textual analysis of the Second Amendment uh, as I dug into that research, it, it surprised me because, you know, the Second Amendment talks about militia and uh, it's sort of this disjointed uh, clause that people say it's got a condition, yada, yada, yada. But when you dig into it, the right to bear arms, if you if you research the history, goes back to this notion, this sort of fundamental natural law notion of defending yourself. And uh, I guess, Andrew, what are your thoughts on connecting the Second Amendment uh, to self-defense? 
Well, you know, I mean, ultimately the law follows politics and politics follows culture, right? So all these things we talk about, the Constitution, natural law, um, you only believe in those things if you believe in those things. And our culture only believes in them if we collectively believe in them, and the laws follow as a consequence. Um, what, what, the, what the political left tends to do in these legal circles, including all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, often is they have an end goal in mind, and they will craft whatever word salad they need that's consistent with them achieving their end goal. It's not principled. There's no natural law. Uh, they'll just, I mean, just read any Sotomayor opinion, and you'll, you'll see the word salad justifying whatever end result she wants out of that case. I can't. Uh, it's too difficult Fortunately, they're mostly dissents. <laughs> yeah, they're mostly dissents, thank God, because, uh, well, she is who she is. Um, but these things matter if we believe they matter. And frankly, the biggest threat we have to the Second Amendment is uh, that we've lost control of the education system in America. So our, our, our kids are not taught the importance of these principles. And if they don't learn them as children, they don't exist for them as adults. Yeah. And then it becomes purely a public policy preference. And bad things happen with guns. There's no question about it. A lot of bad things happen with guns. That's infinitesimal to the good things that happen. But we all know if you only ever hear one side of an argument, it sounds compelling. And if all you hear is the bad side, the bad consequences, listen, the Second Amendment could end up with as little authority and power in our society as the Tenth Amendment if we let that happen. I mean, that's up to us. Just because it's written on, on a piece of parchment doesn't give it effect in the real world. We give it effect in the real world if we want it to. Well, I'm doing my part, Andrew. Capital University School of Law lets me teach Second Amendment law there. So that is an offering now at, at the local law school. It has been for about three years. So I'm doing my part. Try it. <laughs> nice. Hey, you want you want to teach for me? <laughs> I, I've launched a series of law school courses. We can for talk. People. We can definitely talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're always looking for professors. We're having quite a bit of success with that. Well, look, I, it, it, you started by saying that most of your clients are lawyers. And uh, just to, to plug you a little bit, uh, tell us how that works. If I'm a lawyer and I need some help, and when do I know that I need help? Because I think that's part of the problem. People don't even know. I, I, as a criminal defense lawyer, I, I talk to people all the time, and I just referred somebody uh, actually to you. To, to I don't know if they've reached out. But the idea is they're trying to unravel a self-defense case that that isn't so simple. Hardly ever are they law school simplicity uh, cases in the real world. So uh, what do you do for the lawyers that who, who are your clients and, and what should they expect and when do they need you? I mean, what we really do fundamentally when we consult in these cases is help the lawyer craft a, a substantive but plain English narrative of self-defense that's easy to sell to the jury. Uh, we apply the law to the facts of the case, uh, but we do it in a very uh, concrete, step-by-step, -step, coherent basis that's difficult for a prosecutor to attack. That's fundamentally what we do in these consults. Now, the end product looks a lot more complicated than that. It's typically a 200-page expert report. By the way, often that report's enough to, to make the charges be dismissed or at least put the client into a diversion program by itself. I mean, I said earlier, client, uh, prosecutors don't like hard cases uh, when they have plenty of easy cases to do. If you look like you're hard to convict, yeah. Uh, it's much more likely you'll see the charges dismissed or a deferral option put on the table. Oftentimes, when, when the, the lawyers I work for in these consoles drop that report on the prosecutor's desk, it opens a door to a very productive conversation where you can end up not continuing to face that felony charge. But that's fundamentally what we do for these, for these attorneys that we work with. I will say uh, that effective this year, the only consult work we're taking is from our own Law of Self-Defense members. So we have a membership program where people can sign up to get our content, our videos, uh, our courses, all kinds of content. And part of that includes our legal services in a consult. If someone's not a Law of Self-Defense member, we're not taking outside consults anymore. Uh, and, and you guys know, at least uh, Derek, you've retained me on consults. I'm not inexpensive. 
Uh, but we're not available at any price anymore un- unless you're one of our members, a law self-defense member. Yeah, and I, you know, to what Andrew had just previously stated, um, that's exactly what happened in a case I hired him on. He gave me a 100-page report, dropped on the prosecutor's desk, case was dismissed. So Yeah, and, and it's helpful, you know, sometimes is uh, I have a consulting side hustle. Maybe that's not the right word. But we come in, and, and as a criminal defense lawyer, I realize one thing is that we all come in with certain uh, – inherent confirmation bias about what we think the case is, what we think the strengths are, what we think the weaknesses are. And uh, as my uh, my side consulting business has created a, a sort of a step-by-step process to expose that. And it, in a lot of ways, I think that's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're really shedding light on things that we as criminal defense lawyers, it's not that we don't aren't capable of coming up with what the law of self-defense is. I think it's more like all right, here's an outside perspective from somebody who sees it across the board, across the country, and has a historical context of it, experience reading jurors, experience hearing what jurors have to say about this stuff. And um, it sounds like you can provide insight uh, that is valuable. It doesn't mean the lawyer's not capable of it, quite the opposite. It probably, in, in my consulting hustle, it's always better when the lawyers are experienced because then they can take what we help them with and they really take it to a whole new level. Yeah, uh, certainly. I don't mean to take anything away from the criminal defense attorneys I work for. In fact, they're better than me in virtually every respect. Uh, they have the actual in-courtroom trial expertise. They, they manage many, many types of criminal defense cases other than self-defense cases. I don't touch any of that. Uh, the, the only reason I can bring value to these cases is because my, my expertise is very, very narrow, focused exclusively on use of force law. These other attorneys are doing thousands of things on your case that can make or break the case all by itself that I wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole because although I've done that kind of work 25 years ago, I haven't done it in a long time. I don't claim to have that kind of expertise anymore. Um, but it's it's just like any of us, right? Any of us men, we're men, aren't we? Can do a little bit of electrical work, a little bit of plumbing, a little bit of this or that around the house. But when it comes to a, a major task that requires specialized expertise, we bring in an electrician, we bring in a plumber. Uh, it doesn't mean we're incapable. Uh, it just means it's helpful to have that high degree of expertise in specialized cases. And that's what I try to bring to these use of force cases. Great. Well, look, let's uh, let's wrap it up. But tell us how they get a hold of you again and uh, your website, contact information, et cetera. Best way to find me is just at lawofselfdefense.com. Once you get there, you'll be able to find out about in fact, let me do this. Uh, if I have a book, of course. Most of you know I have a book, The Law of Self-Defense Principles. I'll give your audience this book for free, for free. Just pay the cost of shipping it to you. You can get it on Amazon. It's 20 or 25 bucks, but don't do that. I'll give you the book for free at lawofselfdefense.com slash free book. Simple enough, lawofselfdefense.com slash free book, and you'll get the book, and it'll it'll teach you, you know, 90% of what you need to know to make yourself hard to convict in a use of force case. What better deal than that? That's a great deal. Yeah. Absolutely. We're already giving our audience deals, Steve. Right. It, 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 what, what a bargain. <laughs> a bargain at half the price. Wait a minute. It's free. Uh, anyway, well, look, Andrew, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to talk to us. I know there's sure, a ton pleasure. difference. You're out in Colorado. But uh, this, uh, I think this has been most helpful for our audience and, and, and those who are interested in these kind of issues. And there's lots more to come. I mean, I'm sure this isn't the last conversation we're going to have with you. But, uh, Derek, we got lots of guests uh, sort of lined up along the same vein uh, relative to uh, the firearms industry, the uh, the tactical defense type industry, those kind of things. So mm-hmm. stay tuned here at uh, Munitions Podcast. Uh, you can uh, catch all that in the uh, in the in the episodes to come. Uh, any last thoughts before we sign off? Uh, just for me, just if you guys have a question you want us to put in the queue, right now we're using my law firm's website, munitionsgroup.com. You can go ahead and use the Ask Us a Question feature. And uh, other than that, Steve, just as always, be safe and carry on. All right. Thanks, guys.